Welcome, everybody, to episode five of the Critical Strike podcast with Henrique Demore, Meg Kay, and Tyler Esquera. As always, today we're tackling the two-parter here. But the first part is going to constitute uh, or be constituted of three burning questions for the LEC. We did kind of our LCS version a little bit earlier, a few episodes ago. But we're going to tackle the LEC this time around. And in true Meg-centric podcast fashion, at the <laughs> end of the podcast, at the back half, we've got something really special. Meg sat down with... As, as she put it, one of the most iconic faces in League of Legends, Frost Gurren, Indiana Black herself, uh, talking what she's learned through the years, her decision to step away after 2020, and um, and, and all that good stuff. I'm not going to give anything else away, but before we dive yeah, into no spoilers, questions, no spoilers. Megan, Tyler, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. You know, just getting ready for the LCS that's starting up their lock-in uh, tournament this weekend. I'm just really excited to have competitive League of Legends again. It's been too long. It actually hasn't been that long. I mean, it hasn't actually been it that long. It feels like it's been a long but time. But it you feels like the LPL. I've been watching yeah, yeah, yeah. some LPL games recently, and my god, is there some <laughs> variants in that region? It's a fiesta. My main it's... takeaway is that my FPX sweatshirt purchase after they won Worlds in 2019, after I was like, ah, maybe 2020. I don't know about this sweatshirt, but man, uh, LWX mm. has still got it. Kids mm-hmm. still very, very that good at League of Legends. Play? Oh. <laughs> Yeah, it, if, you, uh, yeah if, you, if you haven't checked that out, uh, just go to YouTube, look up LWX versus OMG. Because um, right, that's where it was. It wasn't FPX versus OMG. It was LWX versus OMG. Kaisa play and you'll find it. It's phenomenal. <laughs> yeah, well it was visual butter. It was just visual. Mm, visual butter. It just feels good in butter. my eyes, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Shift the gears a little bit yes. here. Um, yeah, next week we're going to talk LCS and the lock-in tournament and all that. But we want to give the LEC its due here. Um, so three big questions, and uh, they are going to be is the LEC cycling through their rookies too fast? Um, what do we think of kind of the parity in the league? Is that good for international success? And lastly, uh, a question I asked myself in terms of uh, if I peaked in high school, did Europe peak <laughs> in 2018 or 2019? Mm. Uh, but we'll tackle all three of those, starting with this first one here, because there are, uh, this is Meg, one that you brought to the table. Is the LEC cycling through its rookies too fast? It almost feels like an inverse of the problem that North America has. But the thing we kind of learned is that there is a balance to be struck, and there are a couple case studies, uh, cough, cough, crown shot, that came to mind when we were discussing this. It's just, it, this came to mind for me. Uh, I did an interview with Oduamne a while ago. It should be coming out fairly soon. And he was talking about um, Vizicacci's retirement and how he probably still had a good, like, two, three years of very, very good play left in him, but he was just kind of cast out because there was a rookie who could come in and take his place for less money and probably do as good of a job but just take up less of the team's total budget and i think that's something that we're starting to see now and has become particularly prevalent using the case study of mad lions where people will give rookies like a split's worth or a year's worth to prove themselves and then if they don't get it done in that time they can just be replaced straight away and there's like this cycle of young talent that keeps coming up to the lec and isn't being given the time that it needs to develop and i think it's a really worrying trend for europe and that is a balance to be struck and that's just what makes good gms and good coaches right because you know tyler kicking it to you here it feels like north america has almost had an, an inverse problem is in this sense or am i overgeneralizing it um I think that I don't think it's the same, really. Like for Europe, it does feel like people aren't getting, uh, people aren't being given enough time. I think that because there's so much talent available 
um, for teams to kind of just pick and choose whenever they need to. Uh, I feel like it's, I wouldn't, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's like they're looking for instant gratification mm. when they bring in a new player. Um, but because there's so much talent involved and so much available to them, it does kind of feel that way. There mm. are like a lot of, there, there were a few names this past offseason that I'm surprised don't have a team like uh, Crown Shot and Nemesis and uh, even Shadow. I think that Shadow, like, he had a pretty, he had a bad-ish split. Like, he, he wasn't the best, but I think that he still has a lot of potential. And for him to not have a team uh, going into 2021 is pretty surprising to me. Uh, I think that there's still some room to grow. Uh, but I guess there's better fish in the sea for some of these teams that are available. And, and, it's, and it's a bit worrying, I think, to me, when, when you said worrying trend, Meg, I think I, I'd agree personally because it feels like this should be almost what academy teams are for, right? In theory, because like we've kind of touched on, development is a part of it too. Just because someone is one of the top 50 or whatever players in Europe doesn't mean that they're necessarily pro-ready just yet. And there has to be some sort of development. And so academy, should that be the middle ground? Because to me, it feels like it should be. I think it's one of the... The EU Master Circuit is simultaneously Europe's biggest strength and also its greatest weakness because you don't have EU Masters does not give this same kind of pathway that something like um, NA Academy does because there's not that immediate link between the two teams like Fnatic's main roster and then Fnatic Rising their academy team who play in the NLC people don't automatically think of those teams going together and you will not often see Fnatic Rising players coming up to Fnatic I think Mm. um, Dan their jungler who played like uh, three games at a Rift Rivals is the closest thing we've got to that when he took over from Broxa. And it just, it makes you think, does the LEC stop becoming the goal for some of these players after a while? Because does it just become Ooh. the case of like, oh, I know exactly what's going to happen. I'll get played for a split and then someone who is a year younger than me will come in and take my spot and then I'll be back down into EU Masters. So like, will players start to consider building brands and building rivalries and building reputations staying within the eu masters like ecosystem and not even attempting to get up to the lec at all because you, they know that their time there is so brief like i don't or know they could just go to the lcs doom prophesizing a bit but like i feel like this could also promote some players wanting to go to the lcs because they know there's a chance for more longevity because sure. it does feel well okay like, like, we've talked about this before but i think that the lcs is kind of improving in terms of development of younger rookie talent but mm-hmm. there is that is to say younger like they're they're going to be looking because europe is ultimately a lot more competitive i think in terms of uh the higher ladder in in like in in like ranked even like in the amateur scene, I think that the, the the level of quality and play is a little bit higher, um, and so I think that if like a really good European rookie or young player wants to come over to North America, I think they would go for that because a if you find like the next wonder kid from Europe, I think that they'd be a lot better than I don't know I I don't know it, it's 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 a it's a weird it's a weird it's hard thing yeah it it is hard. Um, just because it, it's a, it's a it's a tough situation for these young players because they it's like Meg said 
if they don't perform in their first year, they know that there are like tens, hundreds of other players that are ready, willing, and able to just take their spot and and and, and chomp at the bits. They're like chomping at their heels type of thing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and competition um, does bring the best out of people, absolutely. But I think yeah, it's it's tough when you know that. Um, you have that kind of artificial fire lit under you of, all right, I've got one split to prove it. And with a game like mm-hmm. League of Legends, if the meta just isn't in your favor, that could be tough. what screws you over because the game is changing so often. And I think that even there's a conversation to be had that if we had maybe a little more time we could dive into is, you know, does that, I think, Meg, you said, right? Like, does the else do, do guys think of going to the LCS because there's more longevity? Or you, you talked about building brands, building rivalries. I think of building personal brands as even guys like, uh, guys go over to Korea, right? Guys like Crownshot get signed by Gen G as like content creators or whatever. And maybe mm-hmm. that's the career yeah. path they want to take. And that's completely valid. But is that a symptom of the LEC cycling through its talent too fast? And I think that's a broader discussion that, again, I'd love to get to, into if we had more time. And I think that is a question that's worth even asking players when we get to interview them, uh, you know, in, in just a few short weeks. Here. That's another thing I'm excited about with the Let's LCS go. and the LEC coming back. We get Friday back into those back. Discord press rooms. Yes, sir. Um, but <clears throat> moving on, I mean, you talk about cycling talent. Uh, how about concentrating talent? Uh, you know, the, the question mm. of will anyone challenge G2 this year? We thought about discussing that, but we kind of already touched on that to a degree. And also, I don't know, uh, we, we want to, we're, we're not like other podcasts. We want to be different. <laughs> um, so the way we tried to maybe frame this, which I think is also valid as the talent consolidation gets even more pronounced in Europe, would one rather, would you maybe Tyler as a neutral? Meg as a more European-centric fan, or mm. however you want to come at this, do you think it's better to have one G2, one team of five of the, you know, 25, five of the 40 or 50 best players at League of Legends in the world on one team, and then have, you know, Rogan Fanatic or whatever kind of get brushed off to the side, put all your, uh, put everything into one, ho- mixed metaphors aren't my thing, uh, or three <laughs> really good teams. Um, and, 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 it, and is that even... Do, do we see that that's even the case right now? So we have, so the choice is one team that is like world finalist material and then everyone else is kind of just okay. Or we have three teams that are like world's quarterfinals material. Mm-hmm. Oh, see, I've just phrased it like that and I've kind of shot myself <laughs> in the foot because it's like, of course I want a team to go to finals. But then I guess you have to ask yourself the question of when you have that one team that's going for finals what happens when a single member of that team retires? Like you have no, mm. the quality of the entire region just becomes worse because you have no team that can step up and take that place as the top team because everyone else is just kind of like swimming in this soup of all being exactly the same in the middle of the table. Like a middle of so the pack th- type of thing, yeah. Yeah, I think I would have to go to for having three really good teams and hope that those good teams being able to scrim against each other and learn from each other would turn them from quarterfinals teams into finals teams. Mm. Uh, okay. Uh, the thing is, right, everyone wants to win. And right now, like this is, is if the meta stays the same, which is traditional ADCs, because we know that perks excelled in the bottom lane the most when it was very flavorful in the bottom lane when mages were there and you could really get creative with your team composition when he could but, play mid just on yeah, another part of the map. In a different part of the map <laughs> exactly but now that we've kind of shifted towards a traditional adc again and you know adcs are pretty strong with the new items and 
whatever. I think that this is the strongest that we've seen G2, especially with Reckless, who is honestly the best ADC in the region. And probably, would you say, I'd say top two in the West, obviously. Uh, they have a pretty good shot of going to the final. They do. Um, but what does that say to the rest of like so 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 what i'm worried about with g2 is that kind of like how when team liquid in north america i i know it's difference in in, in quality of, of of talent whatever but i do think that it does like the, the the conversation of lack of competition in your own region does affect your ability to perform on an international stage because you've been playing like no one's no one's challenging you, which means that you don't need to really adjust. Mm -hmm. Scrims on the world super server only do you so much. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. And I think that if you're so far ahead of your domestic, like uh, your domestic uh, competition, there is a, a possibility that you get complacent because you're so good. Uh, and then when you hit the world stage, you get blindsided and hit by a truck that is, you know, Damwon Gaming. And oh, Fun Plus Phoenix. Yeah, like and you I, get you got shocked. Yeah, I think we've had an example of that already. Like Liquid were outrageously dominant in NA. Mm -hmm. Like that roster was just completely unstoppable. They were stomping kids yes. left, right, and center. And then they got to the international stage, and <laughs> a lot of times they crumbled. Like they had a really, really good showing at MSI, and that's not something that we should ignore. Mm -hmm. But I also just don't think that they had a healthy ecosystem in which to develop international caliber play they that's can win the, the region yeah. sure but at the end of the day that's not really the aim for a lot of high level league of legends teams it's like we would the happily top are looking at yeah. like a domestic win so that we could win worlds 100 like, yeah i don't know it's just it's so I'm i would prefer three really good teams that way i would, would really rather a more healthy ecosystem with multiple competitive teams rather than one top dog because I feel like it's just way easier to get complacent as a top dog that does doesn't have any competition. I just and then you get stomped at worlds. And to be honest, the top three teams are aiming at worlds, right? The 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 the, the domestic success is fine, right? But ultimately, you're building this roster to win worlds, especially in Europe because you've tasted success almost to to like two times already. Mm -hmm. And so that's the biggest goal now. Especially for the fanatics and G twos, and especially G two now. Yeah, uh, and and I I think the, the the take I have on it is that this what is kind of best could vary from region to region. What is the best model? Because I think depending on how much talent you have at your disposal, spreading it over three, you don't you might not even have the possibility to spread it over three teams. You might just have to consolidate it all in one go. But I do think that your point about, uh, I think in general, I would rather have three teams as well, if nothing else, because of what you two were saying, which I think could even transition us into the, the third question, which is, did Europe peak? And I suppose that question can only really be answered with a couple more years of a sample size. But I would rather have three good teams, especially in Europe. In NA, I actually think my answer changes a bit just because I don't think there is a talent at the disposal, but I think Europe does have the talent at their disposal mm. to spread mm. it over three teams because metas develop in the tournament uh just crazy stuff happens at worlds yes. i would rather not i would rather not subject just one team to that variance i would rather subject three teams to that variance and maybe you know sooning was the three seed 
LG, you know, LG you know was supposed to make it out of. Hank, that was a really good point. Is that it varies based on the region. Like I, I, the I LCS, the LCS. I think I'd rather have one really, really good team because yeah, like there's not enough talent to create three. Well, not t okay. There's enough talent, but like high level, world caliber mm -hmm. talent. I don't think NA's at that level yet. Yeah, and, I'm not, uh, and I'm not even saying it's cut and dry because, like, we literally just gave the example of TL was that team. And then they get, you know, they had a great performance at MSI, which, like you said, you should not look that over. Say what you want about IG, say what you want about G2, but TL won, uh, you know, they, they got to the finals. The they final. beat the reigning world champions. That should be taken in and of itself. But I think just sooning, they don't get to the world's run they do without variants without Juan Fung just deciding to pop off, right? They were not the second best team at the world championships, period. But they were mm. the finalists. Um, yeah. or they were they they did not have the second most talent, right? On paper. Mm -hmm. During that tournament, yeah. sure, they were the second best. Because the only team that stopped them was an unkill un an undestroyable killing machine that was Damn One Gaming. <laughs> Damn One Gaming, yeah. Right. The immovable object. Exactly. Yeah. But even, you know, Meg, we I mean we uh, the the script you wrote for for a video we just put out on YouTube, it was G2, the only thing that stood in their Grand Slam hopes in 2019 was this immovable object, this thing that they could have never prepared for. Every analyst predicted G2, 3-0, 3-1, and FPX just, uh, they shocked the world. They were not supposed to win that, but they did because crazy stuff happens at Worlds. Mm-hmm. Did your so then, so then I guess the, the question then becomes, yeah. I mean, uh, maybe just rapid fire down. Did you're a peak? Is this even a fair question to ask? Because we're only a year removed from it. Yeah. Mm, I don't, I don't, I think we need another year. I need to see this year. Uh, uh, I want to say that Europe hasn't peaked yet just because we're getting a lot of new faces. Um, we could see these new guys do some crazy things in 2021. Um, but, I don't think they peak just yet. I don't think so. I think that they'll be able to... Europe is talented enough that they'll be able to... I think they can win a world championship. I think they can. Uh, this year is, I think, their best shot at it. With this G2 roster, I think they can win the championship. But, and again, <laughs> there are the FBXs and the Damwon Gamings that uh you know don't care about your storylines <laughs> just no, they do dominate not. so yeah meg i'll throw it to you i think europe have peaked i think europe mm. have done the best that they are going to do for maybe not ever because i don't think you can say that in a sport where talent is cycled so fast you can't say yeah. what the region will look like in three years time and five years time and ten years time but i think with the talent that we have right now Europe has peaked because we look at the two world finals that Europe has gone to in the past, like, oh, it's 2021. <laughs> I was about to say in the mm -hmm. past two years and then I realized that wasn't right. Um, in right. the past three years. <laughs> so we'll take a look at that. We had Fnatic who got to world finals from a very favorable group draw and a meta that was perfectly suited for someone who has now become one of the best players in the world. It was a solo lane carry meta and Fnatic had caps and they mm. still didn't win. And then we look at G2. G2 because, had... But, it was, but to your point, it was only because they ran into 
two of the best solo lane carries in the world. They ran into the three-headed monster of IG that was Jackie Love Rookie and the Shy. In that meta, the best team that hit that meta won. That was the only way Fnatic were going to lose that. Yeah. I'm well, yeah. That that was just Yeah. IG on that like that year's IG is a uh, nightmare fuel for every other region. Yeah. yeah. I cut you off, Meg. Sorry. You were and then no, 2020 no, no, yeah, too. And then so with G2, you had a roaming meta with like an incredibly talented supportive jungler and like possibly some of the best solo laners the world has ever seen and they still couldn't win because we just keep running into these immovable objects that are just better than what europe is able to offer and i don't know with the current best players that we have now i don't think we can beat the best that the rest of the world has to offer because I don't think we've proved that we can do that. We had G2 did not have to take down this G2 did not have to take down one of the best teams in the world to win the MSI that they won. I not like I don't want to take mm. away from the success that G2 had at MSI. I don't want to take away from Team Liquid making it to finals. But that MSI was a very, very strange set of circumstances that led <laughs> to the final that we had. And well. I don't think that you can say G2 had to face the hardest possible competition to win. No. And I think if European teams come up against the hardest possible competition right now, they just can't seem to do it. So you're saying that in order for Europe to start to uh, bridge the divide, it has to be like a new a new generation of talent because yeah. this talent this 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 era's talent is not cutting it. This this era's talent has proved that it even given the most optimal conditions for those specific players to succeed they cannot beat the very very mm. best and i think that that means that we have to rely on the new generation of talent <laughs> which hurts me Tears. to say and it makes me very <laughs> sad but i just unfortunately i think it's true all right g2 prove it wrong bro yeah if you i'm, I'm hopping wrong, on the train if you want to prove me wrong please god do if europe <laughs> win a world's finals in my lifetime this year any like me being this completely year. wrong will be worth it like g2 please prove <laughs> like, me wrong go on prove me wrong y'all yoinked y'all yoinked reckless <laughs> yeah you guys make have, it worth it make it worth it look break my look. heart but make it worth it yes yeah i don't okay. i don't think uh i don't think meg would be upset at having uh a a, a very well reasoned and thought out take here uh proved wrong just by g2 Winning a world title. Winning well, a world yeah, title. Then, then you finally get the, oh, Fnatic season one, blah, 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 monkey off your back. Look, they've got skins. Yeah. They've got world skins. They've got skins. Care. I want just, samurai skins, bro. Give me samurai skins. That is just as legit. The samurai skins would go 10 different times oh hard, though. Oh, my God. Um, but, but I think that I think that your take, Meg, even is the other side of the coin of my thought process of why, even for a region like Europe, it might be just best if you're talking just roll the dice uh, what it, what gives us our best shot for international success because there is so much variance. Because like you said, on paper, if G2 hit their ceiling and some stuff goes sideways for a couple of the teams, yeah, they could win Worlds. This is the best team Europe has ever produced. Period. I don't, I don't think... We've we been can, saying that the last couple of years. Yeah, but every year it gets, it gets more <laughs> and more so, right? And so yeah, but that's yeah. the thing is that that team always has to hit their ceiling. And if you have to keep relying on everything going optimally in a game where every two weeks things change it changes like, on a dime like yeah. you can't you can't just rely on the meta being perfect for you in order if you want genuine long-term success 
you can't just rely on the meta working for one of your teams. And I think the fact that Europe can't even yet rely on that to succeed shows a worrying precedent for me. And again, please, God, a European team, win Worlds, prove me wrong. It will be the <laughs> only time in my life that I've ever been happy to be wrong. But just please do it, I beg of you. Actually, now that you're saying like the whole this gener this era of talent can't win it, now I'm thinking that I should change my answer from three really good teams right now to one G2 because I think this is the only chance you get at a world championship for a bit. Then, right? That's like, fair. On paper, like, on paper, on paper, I think that G2 will be mm, unless suddenly a a new generation of Capses and Recklesses and Perkses come out of nowhere, which is possible. In theory, G2. Have absolutely a shot to win worlds this year, but that's the thing. Uh, as a wise man once said, in theory, there's no difference between theory and practice, but in practice, there is. And with that one, we are going <laughs> to leave this section of the podcast. Yeah, chew on that one for a bit. Meg <laughs> is going to be on the other side of this break with none other than Indiana Black herself, Frostcurin, one of the most iconic faces in league, made a big, big decision to step away from the league scene as a caster, what she's learned uh, through her career in the LPL and the LEC. Uh, she's going to talk to Meg about all that and more. Remember to hit us up on all the podcasting, all the podcasting platforms that we are available on Spotify, Apple Music, uh, SoundCloud, as well as Pocket Cast and Google Play. I think I hit all the major ones. But yeah. if, uh, yeah, regardless, hit us up there. Give us a five star review. Leave a nice, <laughs> give us a five star rating. Give us a nice review. It really, really does help. Uh, Please I just never be thought... nice to us. Or, yeah, just be nice yes. to us. I mean, like, I suppose you don't have to. We want you to, but, you know, uh, you do. We'd you. Love it anyway. If you did. Yeah, yeah we, you we do really you. Would. You do you. That's uh, that's from all three of us. We would appreciate it. Tyler, Iscara, Meg K, who's going to be on the other side of this break, as well as myself, Henrique Demore, going over to Meg right now. Take it away. Today, I am joined by one of the most iconic faces in League of Legends esports, who recently made the huge career decision to step back from the broadcasting spotlight. With incredible stints in both the LPL and the LEC, with me today is none other than Indiana Froskirin Black. So, Frosk, <laughs> how's it going? <laughs> Words like iconic and incredible are quite uh, scary, but pretty good. How are you? Uh, I'm all right. I think your your news definitely brought a bit of a shock to my morning, but I think that's fair to say for the whole LEC world. I think you'd become a really kind of integral part of the broadcast, and it'll be very interesting seeing what the LEC looks like without you in it? Uh, I mean, I, it, it's kind of you to say that. I don't know. It it feels like there's kind of two different sides of it. I feel, and I don't know if it's just like that inner critic that's constantly talking and trying to sabotage, but I feel very split on if I ever really assimilated into the LEC because it was quite a polarizing time for me just in terms of um, media. But mm -hmm. um, I'm glad that at least some people think that I uh, belonged. I, I definitely think, obviously, it's very hard to silence your inner critic because you are your own worst critic always. But I think you you definitely left your mark on the LEC and even just like hanging out in the chats from your Twitch streams and things like that. You can really notice that like you've built this really strong community around you of LEC fans who like really love and support your work and will hopefully support you in wherever you end up next. <laughs> That's the hope. Um... I feel really blessed to have been part of the LEC just because uh, the fandom is so uniquely different. I think that is kind of true for, you know, if you're an LPL fan or an LEC fan or an LCS fan. And I've just really fallen in love with like the energy and culture around the LEC. I think it's such an incredible league. And part of that is to do with the fandom. 
And I think for a lot of LEC fans and a lot of European fans, their first experience of you will have been from either like the handful of international events that you would have done as part of the LPL or just from the LEC. That will be their first experience with you. So for those who maybe don't know your very early history, what was your career trajectory in League of Legends? Um, so I started kind of moving into casting around 2014 is probably when I showed up on the international radar and I built the LPL English product, uh, product, broadcast <laughs> product from um, my bedroom. It was three people, myself, Pyrotechnics and Kelsey alongside uh, Gosu Gamers, I think was one of our early um, sponsors. And we took a stream from like three people to 48,000. Uh, and then we got the cease and desist from Riot as they were moving the LPL uh, broadcast in-house mm -hmm. and gave it over to Oceania. And at the time, I didn't have the greatest relationship with Riot. So they uh, did not want to have me on the broadcast. Uh, I immediately went to the Oceanic team and tried to assist them kind of like pro bono behind the scenes and giving mm -hmm. them a bunch of notes and like working with them. And um, that built up like a, a reputation that they took a chance on me when Papa Smithy went over to the LCK. So then I spent kind of like 2014 to 2017 uh, working with the LPL English product from Oceania to Sydney, Australia, or excuse me, Sydney, Australia to Shanghai. Mm -hmm. um, and then in 2018, made the move over into the LEC. The, I guess the thing that I like, the build is something that's really important there, how you took this kind of tiny product to something really huge and that had a lot of international appeal. You mentioned earlier, like the the polarization of the media around the LEC and how that had been kind of a struggle for you. Do you think it benefited you personally beginning your career in a league which didn't have the same kind of Western attention at the time? Um, I don't know, in all honesty. I've kind of gone like back and forth on this a couple of times. I think that for a long time, it was uh, part of like the polarization on me was simply because I was the voice of the Chinese league. And mm -hmm. while you had to respect the Korean league because uh, the LCK was winning everything, um, the LPL and the Chinese league felt kind of a bit more within reach kind of around that 2014 time period you know this was kind of before we now know our our chinese overlords if you will that kind of yep. like reign supreme uh, above uh, the lec or tend to get them like every single time at the final hurdle and when you are the voice or the figurehead of this region that people don't want to respect people don't really know a lot about and tends to be the um active villain <laughs> um to the western leagues and i yep. think that kind of built up this reputation of almost being like a heel because my job constantly especially in the early times on the desk was to be like no 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 like you don't you don't get to worry about the lck because you can't even beat the lpl yet like uh, western leagues you're 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 putting the um, carriage before the horse right now. That is interesting. It's like, it's strange that you bring up this idea of a heel, because I guess even in like working in the LEC, you still have the international context of a league to talk about. And I guess having experience in multiple leagues kind of gives you an advantage in that respect, because you're not just talking about the LEC, you're talking about LEC teams in the context of the wider world. So it's like, yeah, this team's good, but will they still look good when they're playing against like a full strength XP FPX or a full strength IG? Like that kind of contextual knowledge is really important. And I guess on that kind of note, this is a very broad question, but what did you learn from your time at the LPL, both in the like specifics of your casting and the broader discipline of simply being part of a broadcast and being on camera? Hmm. 
I think the number one lesson that the LPL product teaches people is that there's so many reps. So uh, the sheer amount of casting that you're doing and the sheer amount of the workload versus the team and kind of the resources that have behind you teach you very quickly to kind of be a jack of all trades. in some ways, you can't really specialize on a lot of uh, casting that you can when you're casting in the LCS or the LEC because there's such limited games that development can be hyper-focused and like very over-indexed in specific things. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of like ramp-up and warm-up time. Uh, in the LPL and the LCK, you're literally just swimming and trying to keep your head above water and surviving. But that many uh, repetitions of casting just kind of like, you know, practice makes perfect. It's kind of that type of mentality where you just throw yourself at it so often that you just kind of find your groove or you find mm-hmm. what's working for you. Um, in terms of the other broader skill sets outside of the craft development um, aspect, it's, you know, I was the video editor. I was making the graphics. I was helping with the production. I was uh, leading uh, story meets. Like, it's all of these other skill sets that kind of go along with it. So the LPL and making the uh, adjustment from LPL over into LEC, I saw kind of the creativity that that league was doing with a lot of like, at the time it was, you know, just kind of vetty skits, uh, skits, but it was just like this idea of um, this seems to be the closest to what I'm already used to, which is this all hands on deck, little brother mentality of um, everyone's got like this really diverse skill set. So let's throw ourselves at it and see what we can make magic with rather than like a very structured um, Monday night football League of Legends style mm-hmm. type of vibe. Do you think that that kind of jack of all trades, like learning everything because it's a necessity type of approach, do you think that's something that is important for esports? Because I think a lot of esports broadcasts and esports teams especially in smaller esports everything is sort of done by a couple of people just because it's a passion project do you think that that being lost now that league becomes more and more franchised and more and more like official do you think that's a negative thing for league esports as a whole i mean the real uh answer is kind of unfair because it's you know it's nuanced it's both it has its Mm -hmm. pros and its cons the cons would be um (laughs) that you know, when someone is doing a passion project, uh, nine times out of ten, they're probably going to be abused by the system. And you see that all all over the gaming industry, not just in esports and not technically not even just even in gaming or tech, but um, just kind of in general principles of, of capitalism. You know, if someone is like, oh, you know, I will sacrifice my blood and my body for this. Well, chances are that your employer will sacrifice your body and your blood to to get it done. Um, but then on the other side, you know, you really get uh, endemic in-house uh, minds that have built up this incredible skill set that then make these incredible products. And I think that's something that does make esports stand out and why mainstream endemic sponsors or mainstream brands and names can't really move into the space as successfully as they probably did um, in other ventures because it just kind of reeks of not really getting it. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that Monte Cristo uh, on his Twitter has kind of talked about like, Eventually, there'll be a a position, I think we would call it closest to kind of consulting of um, how to build an esports product or kind of creative direction for it. But I think that should really exist because there's just so many people who just don't get it mm-hmm. and keep trying to throw themselves at the wall. I think it's difficult to say that there is any one person who has got it in terms of esports, but I think a lot of people would say that the way the LEC has branded itself in recent years is much closer to how esports should be viewing itself, not as like the little brother to traditional sports, but as its own distinct property with its own distinct creative freedoms that doesn't have to be treated like very serious, everyone in suits, gotta talk very professionally, you can have more fun with it. And I guess on that kind of note, 
how did you feel about the creative freedom that you were given in the LEC? Obviously, <laughs> the LEC has become kind of known for its like skits and like Vedius in like a giant inflatable muscle man costume type bits. How, from a production perspective, was that creative freedom actually like enacted for you? Um, the talent basically makes everything for the LEC. And then we have an incredible production staff kind of behind camera that then get to execute on like the talent's wacky and crazy ideas. So a lot of like all of the caster ads, um, rap battles, uh, the inflatable Vetti suits, just like kind of all of this stuff usually starts with like, we used to, the casters used to be seated together within the um, Riot office. Like now, obviously, structure has changed. Mm -hmm. And it would just be, you know, Vetti is walking up to Dracos and being like, okay, hear me out. What if we shittily rap? about the LEC teams. <laughs> and then like a producer will like stand up from the other side of the room and like raise an eyebrow and be like, I'm listening. <laughs> Tell me more. Exactly. And then basically the casters of the talent like make these really shitty, stupid ideas. And then the producers like polish up these turds and just like overproduce the shit out of them. And uh, it like hits this, I don't know, middle ground of, of genius. Cause I think the part of the humor is, is like, why did they spend that much money and that many resources to do this to make that look like that like that's funny that they just wasted their time and effort and we're just like yeah it hurts uh, yeah but funny <laughs> <laughs> we're making a fool of ourselves but at least you guys are liking it so i but think uh, oh no continue sorry <laughs> sorry or well, i was just gonna say the like you were talking there about all of the the content that the lec me makes being very talent-led like it's kind of just throwing spaghetti at a wall and then the stuff that sticks ends up being really, really good because you have this very strong technical backing behind you of like a really good in-house team working for the LEC. How, it sounds kind of similar to the LPL in that way, the way you described the LPL initially, but just with more kind of backing and more resources. What do you think that the LEC has taught you that is different from the LPL? Or do you think the LEC is just a heightened version of what you were doing in the LPL? Um, structure and like actual broadcasting skill sets. I think if you go back and watch my um, like very first appearances on the LEC, especially on like standing position and things like using a telestrator and doing a three wall delivering teleprompter, like just the actual technical aspects of broadcasting and integrating with the tech and the production itself um, has heightened dramatically. Because obviously in the LPL outside of international events, I would never get practice doing that. I remember, I think my uh, MSI in Berlin, like I think it was probably 2017, probably right before my 2018 um, move. I had to do a, a Dom one, a three wall segment, and then like a walk into a telestrator. And I'd never done anything like that before. And I had my LPL producer at the time who um, in the global scheme of things would be like a, I don't know, like a graphics operator or like a director as opposed to like lead producer of a world's broadcast, like had to come <laughs> into the, uh, the standing position of the LEC studio and like trying to to talk me down and like amp me up because I was so uh, nervous. Whereas um, now, after two years of the LEC, those things come very second nature. And so mm -hmm. um, it's kind of about integrating the traditional broadcast skills and structure of how to run a premier larger scale broadcast um, versus the jack of all trades, uh, all hands on deck, kind of scrappy grassroots passion project of the LPL. Mm -hmm. The what would you say is the most difficult part of working on broadcast for you? Like, obviously, the cameras everywhere trying to work out where you're meant to look, like, telestrators everywhere, like, all just the technical stuff. Is 
to me sounds horrific. I am currently recording this out of my bedroom. I can't think of anything worse than having like a million cameras pointed on me. What would you say is the part that you found the most difficult throughout your career? Mm, probably being a front-facing uh, persona to the audience itself. I never, like I get stage fright and casting in front of a crowd for the short time that I did it before COVID kind of flipped everything upside down um, was just a very different high because I'd never gotten to do that since the LPL was always in a studio and or, or a basement or even when we were in-house in the Shanghai uh, crowd, they were listening to the Mandarin cast and not the English cast. Mm -hmm. So it still had like a, a lot of privacy to it. Whereas when I first came to the LEC, um, casting in front of the Berlin crowd and they're uh, right there. Like <laughs> you can you can throw a pin off the casting desk and uh, hit the audience. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, sections where the audience will kind of move and ooh and awe ah with you and either you have them or you don't. We've even had a case of like, you know, the audience um, basically heckling uh, casters before, like oh. Medic was trying to do a segment and an audience member kept like he heckling him like, oh, put the games on. It's like, motherfucker, this guy's not keeping the games. He's trying to entertain you while they set up the games, not uh, the games have been paused you. for him. <laughs> oh, God, I will never understand fans like that. And I guess the, like, the fans have been one of the most divisive parts, I would say, of your time at the LEC. You've made no secret on your social media of some of the issues that you have with like the, the online communities surrounding League of Legends, particularly the Reddit community. I think the, the tone in my voice belies a lot about, about the Reddit community. But um, aside from... I'm trying to think how to phrase this question to not make it sound disingenuous, because I don't want to rule out all of the the online stuff that comes with that has come with working in the LEC but I think I guess I'll just say how do you think you'll remember your time at the LEC with the good the bad the the everything in between that's come along with your time here hmm I mean uh the first thing that kind of comes to mind is just the um sheer amount of friendships that I made uh I am exceptionally close to the LEC team I lived with Vedius for over a year. I've known Draco since before we were casting partners. I'm incredibly close to uh, Inder and Medic. Um, I think part of what worked so well for the team and part of what, you know, there's a lot of different factors that go into making a broadcast um, do well. You know, it's the production, it's the expertise, it's the uh, execution. But I think kind of like the secret formula or that special sauce that the LEC got right truly was, as corny as it sounds, the, the power of friendship. Um, if we look like we're having fun and we sound like we're having fun, it's because we genuinely are. Um, we were all exceptionally good friends. And I know that we're supposed to call ourselves a team and not a family because it's about separating personal uh, from professional. Mm -hmm. But the uh, LEC casters are 100% um, my family. Uh, so I think that will be the the saddest thing is not getting to work with them. And I think that's like that's that's genuinely nice to hear because obviously there's so much pressure that comes along with being in a front facing role, particularly in an industry like the gaming industry where everything is online. So people feel like they have a lot more freedom to just say anything. So there's a lot less filter in like fan feedback. I think it's like those kind of relationships that you form with the people you work with are really important for like keeping your your morale up in moments in like in difficult moments we'll say um i guess another question which i think might be harder to answer is how do you think you will be remembered 
as a caster in the LEC? Or how would you like to be remembered? <laughs> There's like a lot of arrogance and hubris to this question. Um, I would like to be remembered as uh, the greatest analyst desk that uh, League of Legends ever had, because I honestly felt that I was, especially after um, Jat and Deficio left. But even when Jat and Deficio were there, I, I think that there was a reason why every finals desk um, for that period was Jat, Deficio and I. And I felt very confident in my craft and my uh, ability to hang there. Um, I would hope that, I don't know. I feel salty is probably the best word uh, for it. And like, you know, you can call me petty, but I feel like I gave uh, so much to the League of Legends community in uh, trying to build the LPL broadcast, uh, picking up my stuff and like moving across the world, following it everywhere. Um, then trying to like really work on myself as a caster when I went to the LEC and being at the LEC. And uh, at that point, I just felt like I was like that was the point where every single MSI and world final, I knew that I would be on it because I knew that I had kind of reached my my peak of my ability, at least as far as like the analyst desk was concerned. Um, and I was trying to get there with casting and kind of refining my craft. And for, you know, majority of <clears throat> 2019, Dracos and I were favored really heavily. Like we were getting great internal feedback, um, external feedback. And then it just kind of all fell apart uh on the g2 versus dom one semifinal where there were like multiple hate threads that had to be like condensed and we just couldn't even open social media i'd like to be remembered for the um effort and talent that i uh put into the craft i feel like i basically built a league um you know speaking about the lpl english product from my bedroom and followed it across the globe uh and then at my highs you know, there was a reason why all of the world final analyst desks were me, Jat, and Deficio. We were considered the best of the best and that I got to stand shoulder to shoulder with, um, you know, talent of that caliber. But the cynic in me, and, you know, maybe this is just like the, <laughs> the uh, PTSD of um, dealing with the polarization is mm. that I, uh, I fear that that's how it'll be remembered as like a controversial topic that you know, came and went, and I guess it's just frustrating to me, and I, I wish I could let it go, but frankly, I can't. Do you think that social... How... To what extent do you think social media colours your view of your casting? Because of, I think a lot of people say that they try and avoid reading social media, people in front-facing positions, but I think also checking social media about yourself is kind of inevitable especially the way in which social media is so integral to our lives now, it's kind of impossible to not catch these little comments about yourself. Do you think, how much you take social media feedback on board when it comes to your casting? I mean, I think that there's kind of, you know, two trains of thought. Um, Shocks spoke about this kind of last time on uh, Cloud9's podcast with myself and um, Aaron Ashley Simon and was talking about how uh, this idea of just like walk away from it or turn it off is just frankly really outdated um, mm -hmm. it just doesn't exist in the current e ecosystem of how we live our lives uh, especially not with lockdown and especially not with everything online you know it just doesn't exist um it's too integrated it's too important it's the brand it's where you make the money it's how you pay your rent you can't just afford to, to just walk away and yeah you can have different coping mechanisms like you know i don't go on uh reddit 
on the days that I cast or kind of like the, the lead up onto it. You know, you don't check your phone on um, Twitter when you're you're in the job. You figure out kind of like what works for you. Um, as far as like actual feedback from uh, social media, there's, and I mean this quite seriously, there is nothing of value there ever. <laughs> and if there is, then your leadership and your management and frankly yourself has like absolutely failed yourself. Um, because A, even when the the audience or the feedback or the criticism, whatever word you want to flame, whatever word you want to associate to it, it is saying one thing, they still don't, they don't understand what they're saying. Mm-hmm. Like an example that I usually use when I'm working with other casters is um, this one will go all the time when like people are, especially when people are like new, like when I started casting, Andrew started casting, Vedia started casting, whoever it was, it'll be like, oh, this caster doesn't know anything. And it's like, well, frankly, that's false. So the the whole idea of a caster not knowing anything, like they have to go through pretty rigorous interviews to get the position that they have. So obviously that's untrue. Okay, well, why do they think that you don't know anything? Well, is it an actionable that maybe you need to talk more about um, micro intimate details to convince the audience that uh, you know something where you're talking about, it, you know, in this interaction and using the flesh like this and at this level and like all of that, then that's how you kind of like glean from that. But you're not learning that through, you know, the feedback that social media is getting you you're learning that because uh your leadership your management your development plan are very consistent and people are checking with you you're constantly reviewing your own work and you have peers around you who will help point you in the right direction so it's more it's more nuanced than the audience is able to grasp is what you're saying um i just think that there's a really big gap in like the vocabulary of uh what the audience understands to like the craft itself and i'm sure professional players will say this all the time there's like a, a thing where soaz will and i pull up soaz because he's probably the most vocal about it where he'll talk about um uh like the casters they the broadcast shapes the narrative or the narrative is shaped on casters and it just like ruins p- p- players lives and uh i'm just like the casters aren't creating the narratives that hurt the players. Casters, as someone working behind scenes in broadcast, we never ship a negative narrative. That has like never happened in a meeting ever. Our number one job is to sell these players and these teams and make everyone think that our league and our players are fucking incredible and amazing. Now that's obviously very different if like on a cast, like a caster makes like a throwaway comment, but there's never ever been like a ship narrative. The narrative and, and talking with players that people and players always hate is the one that the community and social media and Reddit create. And then they just blame the casters for that. And the casters feel the same way. Where like Reddit and social media and shit will just like, I'm like, it's very clear what the problem here is. There, and we keep like blaming each other. And that's just not really how it works when I think we just need to realize that like these uh, places like reddit is a dark place you do not go there you do not belong there that is not for us we we get to the the green room and like our own skype back channels and these types of things and i think it's hard to let that go because we're also dealing with um you know a a lot of immaturity a lot of people who came into esports didn't have like the white collar programming and job before they they came into esports you know this is like the adult job where there's no adult to be seen i think that point that you just raised is something that's very interesting to me the idea that you never ship a negative narrative and i think that harks back to something that you and dracos talked about with spawn on one of your episodes of um worlds after dark the the world show that you guys did on twitch and it was talking about i think spawn was the person who brought it up but it's this idea that there is not enough disagreement in casting the way it is right now 
where a lot of like analyst desk segments and even to a certain extent in-game casts it's not people it's not the analysts or the casters posing their opposing opinions it tends to be people agreeing with each other is that something that you think is becoming a real problem in league casting specifically uh, I mean, I would say yes, um, but also like Spawn was my uh, mentor and Oceania. So I learned a lot of like my technique from him. So we tend to to see casting as a craft a very similar way. Whereas I know that there's casters, especially in the league ecosystem, who wouldn't agree with that take that Spawn has. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it, it's really fair to point that out. Um, it almost creates like, it's funny too, because Vettius Ender and I um, will have like these conversations where because we're constantly talking about the game and watching the same games and in the same room, it does create like an echo chamber. And so we think about things a similar way. And even if we disagree, um, you know, we'll like get into an argument in the room and then you almost never hear that come out on cast because we've already spent, you know, 40 hours together before you even see us on broadcast where we've already like hashed that out and so we'll like say something on broadcast and kind of give like a snide smile because you know it's like ah yes that was the argument that i won over ender or like whatever it happens to be um but like in terms of in casting flow and like what is graded on what makes a good cast uh the people who have written that I guess, criteria or sheet don't want to have disagreements. Mm -hmm. But that isn't to say that they want everyone to sound the same. But like, um, famously, there's like an analyst desk where Zyrene and uh, Spawn get into like a bit of a a tussle or like a a back and forth. Or if a cast um, and casters aren't moving in the same direction, it, it tends to not get registered very well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like the immediate feedback comes there. So I don't really know what the answer is. Uh, Vettius, Ender, and I have tried like not talking about games and seeing if we kind of come to different conclusions. And sometimes it'll happen, but also most of the time now because we just kind of like grew up and have kind of the same theory or principle about how we look at the game now, which is often um, taught. I always say that the region that you cast teaches you how you think about the game, Mm -hmm. which is why I think kind of the biggest difference between minds and opinions is not necessarily on is the LCK team better or the LPL team better or the LEC team better or the LECS team better. It's what do the LC, what has the LCK taught the LCK casters that they think is the correct way to play the game? What has the LCS taught the LCS casters that they think is the correct way to play the game? And the, the team pissing contest of like, who's better or who's worse in like the intimate rankings is just kind of the byproduct of the uh, larger thing, which is, you know, when I was an LPL caster and I saw an AD carry, you know, whittle someone down to very low HP and then that low HP opponent like jumped back into the middle of the team. I lean forward because I'm like, he's going to flash. He didn't flash because I'm in the LEC and that's not how we play here. We don't get to have fun in the LEC. No crazy flashes. <laughs> Everyone plays by the book. That, um, the... Casters being a product of the regions that they come from is something that I think is particularly interesting because it can make achieving diverse casting styles more difficult because obviously with casters working in the same space, you are all receiving similar feedback from the same people. So Mm -hmm. you are going to all kind of lean towards a certain way of doing things because you're all working under the same production. How do you think that diversity of opinions can be encouraged in the the analyst or the casting space? And do you think it can be done? <laughs> uh, that's the million dollar question. I personally think that it can be done. 
I think a really big issue that we have right now are the feedback loops. Um, so you have to imagine that there's a criteria of uh, what makes a good shoutcaster, and it's kind of like pulled into a lot of different lists. And this criteria was created by um, an executive producer and a talent lead. Uh, if the talent lead, and this is entirely hypothetical, is a play-by-play caster and doesn't really understand the intimacies of color casting and didn't have a color caster um, assist with creating that criteria, is that a good criteria to judge a color caster? And I'm not going to reveal what my answer may or may not be, but you know, these are kind of like one of, one of the issues. The good and the positives are, of that are like, if you know what your boss is grading you on um, and you have a grading sheet, then that makes life significantly easier to please your, your management and your leadership and continue to develop in a really consistent way that has been shown to work. So there's like the pros um, versus the cons. And I think how you would diversify kind of the different voices or, or casting styles is to make um, more in voices included on the conversation. You know, if you have a criteria for casters, you know, why not have that criteria looked over by uh, color casters? Why not have a summit of all of the color casters globally where we can agree on, you know, how we want to um, define our craft or what we think is important? Why not have a summit of all of the play-by-play casters? Why not then have that approved and kind of whittled down and have like all these different pieces that go into it? And then in the feedback um, cycles, when you're given kind of this this Bible of how we're going to grade uh, casters by, recognize that when you're grading a caster, when you're listening to someone, just because you would do something different than that caster is doing currently doesn't make what they're doing bad. You know, sometimes you need to be the best uh, iteration of Vettius and not the best iteration of Deficio. Does that make sense? Like, Yeah, that makes sense. Not trying to fit everyone into a JAT or Deficio-sized uh, peg hole. Make new peg holes rather than try and force people into the ones that already exist. Yeah, because that's how you get uh, a good product is when you have, you know, voices like uh, LS and um, voices like Vettius and voices like Azale, who all have very different uh, opinions about how they view the game and who they think is strong and then putting them in the same room and then having a roundtable discussion with them where you get to have that rich nuance and depth and uh, the audience gets the most educated and complete view of all of the sides rather than, uh, you know, brainwashing the same thing. That, I think that's very interesting because that's a very unique to not necessarily unique to esports but a much more esports centric view where i think a lot of the way that traditional sports looks at casting is kind of do what we've done before because we have so much of this like this rich history that we have to live up to and we have people who have watched our shows for years and years and years and they have a certain standard that they expect so when we bring new people in it's to fit a pre-existing standard rather than what you say esports casting should be doing which is try and create new standards from the new casters that you bring in i think i think we are about to run out of time so i'm going to circle back to the very beginning of this conversation for what will be my final question and we talked about what you'd learned from the lpl and what you'd learned from the lec and how you think those had those learnings improved your casting how do you think the knowledge that you have gained in the casting space will help you in your future career plans? Um, frankly, because it taught me how to get better. I think um, love me or hate me, I don't think that there's any 
differing opinion that I didn't get dramatically better over the time period that I had. And when I was really sitting down and kind of figuring out what I wanted to do next, I knew that I had created a system of development and I understood how to work with people, how to give feedback and how to build people up and um, work together on a product to uh, perfect a product. And I think that hopefully I could have been or I was felt and could be felt and what I was bringing to the LEC and kind of like everything that I touch, whether that was a segment on an analyst desk or working in a skit or working on a rap battle. And now it's taking um, those skills that were started in the LPL and, you know, you know, doing the graphic design and planning out interviews and kind of figuring out how to shoot stuff and then perfect it in the LEC. And, you know, now that you have resources, this is how you structure these types of things. This is how you uh, plan for this stuff. This is what's important. And this is how, you know, development works that um, moving into a more managerial or leadership role that I can be able to teach people around me how to be the best version of themselves so that no matter what team or product I'm working on, um, it is elevated with my presence there. Well, I think with a, a skill set and a mentality like that, you will be an absolute credit to wherever you're headed next. And I'm one, I for one, I'm incredibly excited to see where you end up in the future, wherever that may be. Uh, unfortunately, that's all we have time for this week, but I know we'd, that we'd absolutely love to have you back in the future if you'd be willing. Always. Awesome. Until next time, I have been Meg Kay, my guest has been the wonderful Frost Kieran, and this has been the Critical Strike Podcast. Make sure to check us out wherever you get your podcast fix.